Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. It was the early 70s in California, and Shirley was divorced and a single mother. One day out of the blue, she called Steve Fales and invited him on a date. The young couple took Tina with them and went to the San Francisco Zoo. Steve got a job as a firefighter, and they married in 1973. Two years later, they welcomed a son. Drew and Tina were six years apart, but that didn't matter. She adored him. Tina had a sense of humor, loved jokes, was funny, and could be sarcastic, but in a nice way. Growing up, she joined Brownies, was in Girl Scouts, and played softball. The family moved to a house in the suburbs in Pleasanton. There, she met Katie. The two girls shared the same sense of humor. For fun, they pranked their neighbors, making phone calls or knocking on doors and running away. One of the boys they targeted was Weldon, someone they had a crush on. Joshua Soshan's book, Murder in Pleasanton, revealed that in 1982, Shirley and Steve separated. He moved out while Shirley and the children continued to live in the house. But Steve's child support payments weren't enough. Shirley worked at a convenience store, cleaned houses, and rented out the extra rooms on her home to strangers. For Drew, the constant in his life was his older sister. She babysat him, looked out for him, and became his role model. In the fall of 1983, Tina began her freshman year at Foothill High. At the time, there was a lot of drugs and alcohol at the school, but Tina wasn't into any of that. She was a sweet, quiet person who did her own thing. She didn't participate in extracurricular activities, wasn't a cheerleader, and didn't join sports. Unfortunately, some of her classmates didn't appreciate her sense of humor and sarcasm, and Tina found herself struggling socially at school and was picked on. One day, Tina and her brother were down at the creek when she saw people on the other side of a culvert that ran under the freeway. The culvert was at least eight feet high and tall enough to walk through. She asked what they were doing, and they replied, is a shortcut to school. Tina made a note of it. That would shave almost five minutes off her walk to school. The school officials and the police didn't want students using the culvert, and they closed it for a while. But the students refused to walk the long way around and began crossing in the middle of the freeway. So the culvert was reopened. Tina was still taking the bus to school and hated it. The mean girls threw rocks at her while she waited at the bus stop. 
Then once on the bus, they threw insults at her, criticized and threatened her. So in March 1984, Tina stopped taking the bus. April 5th was a beautiful spring day, sunny with clear blue skies. Tina dressed in purple pants, a black sweater with a matching purple stripe, and a purple hoodie. Shirley was driving Tina to school that morning, and it was her turn to sit in the front seat. But Drew raced to the car and beat her to it. As Shirley drove, she asked Tina if she wanted to change schools. Tina wanted to, but she shook her head and said, not yet. She'd wait a couple months till the end of the school year, then she'd transfer. At school, a sophomore brought alcohol and shared it with his classmates. Among them was 16-year-old Stephen Carlson. Steve wasn't part of the in-crowd and was often the butt of jokes. He didn't handle the alcohol well, and the guys in his auto shop class didn't like the way he was talking to girls. So the drunken group coaxed Steve into a large metal dumpster filled with food and trash. Then they locked it. Steve screamed to be let out. The guys just laughed. As they walked by, they kicked the dumpster, knowing the sound would be deafening to Steve. Around 10 a.m., a teacher heard yelling and unlocked the dumpster. He was surprised to see Steve, belligerent and drunk. He ordered him to the school's office, but Steve headed in the opposite direction towards the football field. The lunch bell rang, and Tina's day was about to take a turn for the worse. A group of girls threw rocks at her and called her names. Then they threatened her and told her they were going to kick her butt after school. Just after lunch, Steve left the school and headed towards the freeway, cutting through the culvert to get home. His house was the closest one to the culvert. Soon after, three of his classmates arrived at Steve's house to find him drinking. His parents were out of town, and he'd been throwing parties during school hours. Steve knew his dad would whip him for that. But at the moment, he didn't care. Even though he didn't have a driver's license, he grabbed the keys to his mother's car and went for a spin around the block. Steve wasn't the best at making good decisions. In addition to alcohol, court records revealed that he'd started using marijuana at age 14 and methamphetamine at 16. After Steve's classmates left, he was outraged that he'd been bullied. In his head, he could still hear the guys laughing at him. He strode to the kitchen, grabbed a knife, and walked outside. Tina's last class ended at 2.20 p.m. She was scheduled for detention, but decided not to go. We don't know why. Perhaps it was because some of the girls that had threatened her at lunch were also going to be there. Tina hung around the school for a while before heading home. She walked past the baseball field. Dean, a classmate, was behind her 
and as he turned off, casually said goodbye. Tina continued walking alone through the empty football field, pushed her tiny frame through a hole in the fence, and wound her way through the streets. Sean was walking a few minutes behind Tina and recognized her. They lived just a few houses apart. Just then, his friend Marty drove by in his Camaro and offered him a ride. Minutes later, Tina's neighbor Weldon saw Steve in his front yard, then crossed the street, saw Tina by the culvert. It was 3 p.m. and Weldon was rushing to meet his mother. The two, who had been victims of bullying that morning, passed each other near the culvert. Now one of them would turn in to a bully. With his mind blurred by alcohol, Steve raised the small knife and thrust it into Tina. There was no hilt on the four-inch blade, and his hand slipped on the blood. In a frenzy of anger, he sliced at her face and body. Her school books and papers flew everywhere. Tina tried to defend herself. Her hands and arms were cut. Steve continued to stab her. Blood drenched her clothing. After 44 strikes, his anger exhausted. He stood over her, holding the bloody knife. Tina lay motionless, dead at 14. Minutes later, Larry Lavelle was driving his semi. A truck driver for nearly 30 years, he was familiar with the freeway. He happened to glance to his right and spotted something. He wasn't sure what he saw, but his instincts told him he needed to go back. He took the next exit and circled around. He pulled over to the side of the road and started to walk down the embankment when he spotted a body covered in blood. Larry froze, then quickly returned to his truck and sped to the fairgrounds in search of a payphone. There, he spotted a policewoman, ran over and reported what he'd seen. She called the dispatcher, and within minutes, Detective Craig Veteran heard the call, raced to the fairgrounds, and picked up Larry. Meanwhile, another student, Kurt, was heading home when he spotted Tina's body. He ran home, and his brother called 911. Then students Eric and Jay came across Tina and saw the blood. They crept slowly towards her. Eric reached down and felt for a pulse. There was none. But he noticed her body was still warm. They raced up the path and straight to Steve's house and banged on the front door. Nobody answered. Then they spotted a neighbor outside across the street and ran over. At 3.27 p.m., two calls to 911 came in within seconds of each other. Detective Veteran and Larry returned to the freeway. Larry remained in the car while the detective searched for Tina. Climbing down the embankment, he found her 
and felt for a pulse. Sirens wailed as more officers sped to the scene. A second detective arrived to take photos and gather evidence. They searched for the murder weapon, but didn't find it or any evidence. Then the detective looked up, and in a tree about eight feet tall, spotted a purse. Without touching it, he attached an evidence tag to its zipper, then lowered it into a paper bag. By 3.40 p.m., police had identified Tina from the name written on her books. An hour later, Drew was riding his bike near their home when he noticed his sister wasn't home yet. Usually, Tina would be watching TV by now. His mother, Shirley, headed out, saying she was running to the bank and would be back shortly. Minutes later, detectives pulled up to the family home. They spotted Drew and took him to a neighbor's. When Shirley returned and saw the detective and a priest at her house, she knew her daughter was dead. Immediately, rumors began circulating. The East Bay Times reported that the teacher who'd unlocked the dumpster suspected Steve and asked him outright if he had anything to do with it. Steve replied, God knows. Twenty police officers were assigned to the case. Steve was overheard joking that he killed Tina because she wouldn't do his homework. Detectives interviewed Steve twice. He told detectives that he'd been intoxicated and that with years of drug use, he couldn't remember things clearly and provided an alibi that he'd been driving his mother's car when he saw Tina. Tina's murder sent shockwaves through the community. The Oakland Tribune reported that she was cremated and her ashes spread in Yosemite National Park. Court records reveal that two years later, detectives interviewed Steve again. He continued to deny killing Tina. Detectives didn't have enough probable cause to arrest him. Steve went on with his life. He continued his downward spiral of drug use and ended up homeless. Brief stints of sobriety occurred when he was jailed for drug convictions or lewd acts on a minor. Tina's case went cold for 23 years. Then in 2007, her case was reopened and DNA from the crime scene was tested. The fingerprints and blood found on her books was Tina's. The DNA under her fingernails was also hers. But four years later in 2011, a spot of blood found on her purse was tested and found not to belong to Tina. It was a match to Steve. Two detectives visited Steve, who was in jail. Dressed in a prison-issued orange jumpsuit, he asked if he was under arrest, and they told him, no, they just wanted to talk to him. 
Steen was self-absorbed and began to tell the detectives about his drug use, how meth numbs a person, and what his life was like in the system. His language was rough, and he swore often. Then the detectives read Steve his Miranda rights and told them he had the right to a lawyer. Steve continued to ramble on and talk about himself. Then one of the detectives mentioned they were investigating Tina's murder. Steve coughed and sputtered. The detectives asked what he remembered. He replied, not much, because of the drugs. Then he asked for a lawyer. Steve was charged with first-degree murder. He maintained his innocence. At his trial in 2014, he was found guilty and sentenced to 26 years to life in prison. He appealed, and in 2017, his conviction was reduced to second degree. In 2020, 36 years after her death, Steve finally confessed to killing Tina. He wrote letters to Tina and her family. He gave prison officials permission to share them, and Tina's family released them to the San Francisco Chronicle. In one of the letters he wrote in part, I was living in denial for many years, not being able to believe or take responsibility for brutally murdering you on that day. I want you and your family to know you did absolutely nothing to deserve what I did to you. The school planted a tree in Tina's memory and vowed to never forget her. Steve has a parole hearing scheduled for some time in 2023. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Shirley Duguay. She escaped her abusive ex-husband Doug and fled to Prince Edward Island. After her disappearance, a bloody leather jacket was found with a single white cat hair containing DNA. Find out how science and that cat hair pointed directly to her killer. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects and fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>